Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we believe there's no such thing as secular, something that's particularly true of the work of J.R.R. Tolkien. It's been 21 years since Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and it's been eight years since The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. But we're finally going back to Middle Earth, courtesy of the eight-part prime video series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. No Peter Jackson involvement this time around. Now, given Tolkien's Christian faith and the way he echoed the biblical narrative in his characters, descriptions, and themes, his work is, of course, of immense interest to us here at Think Christian. So many rich ideas are at play in what could be called Tolkien theology. The nature of evil, our susceptibility to sin, the gospel's tendency to upend worldly hierarchy by choosing the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, to reference 1 Corinthians 1.27. We're going to touch on some of these ideas in this episode with the help of Sarah Welch Larson and Claude Acho. Other theological avenues are explored in the new and free ebook that we've published, considering all eight previous screen adaptations of Tolkien's work. As I've mentioned on previous shows, you can get that ebook at thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. That's thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. While I'm mentioning links that I hope you remember, here's another one, thinkchristian.net slash movie club. That's where you can sign up to join the TC Movie Club and receive an invite to our October 22 online gathering to discuss Transcendent Spielberg. We'll be talking about signs of transcendence in the films of Steven Spielberg from Close Encounters of the Third Kind to E.T. to Always. I've also got a video essay up at the Think Christian YouTube channel to start us thinking about Transcendent Spielberg. So again, to join the TC Movie Club and be part of that discussion, go to thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Okay, let's shift gears a bit and talk about Transcendent Tolkien. I'm joined by two guests for this conversation, Sarah Welch Larson and Claude Acho. There's, I think, only one way to establish who is the bigger Tolkien nerd here. Which one of you speaks Elvish? <laughs> um, <laughs> not, yeah. not not me. Yeah, not you, I, I learned a little Elvish specifically because I was a huge Lord of the Rings nerd, and it's actually why I got my degree in linguistics in the first place. So Whoa. I knew it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Huge That's Lord of the Rings. Quite, man. quite impressive. And so we will expect you to correct us as well on any mistakes. I know I'm likely to make at least. So, so keep an eye on that for me, Sarah. Thank you. Let's start with you, actually, because you also did contribute, Sarah, to our Think Christian ebook on the screen adaptations of Tolkien's work. You wrote an essay on Ralph Bakshi's 1978 animated adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. This is an unfinished, somewhat hurried project. You talk about that in the essay. It still, though, captures Tolkien's world in a, in a unique way. So tell us about it and tell us what Tolkien theology you pulled from it. Yeah, so Bakshi's Lord of the Rings is, it's a strange little beast. Like, like you'd mentioned, it is very unfinished. And I think that that feels almost more like a feature rather than a bug for me because there's so much time and care spent, especially in the earlier parts of the movie, focused on establishing the hobbits and who they are and the world that they come from and what it is that they want to rescue when they set out on their mission to destroy the One Ring. And so you get a lot of just 
beautiful landscapes and, and beautiful backgrounds and a lot of very lovingly animated gestures for these hobbits who are established as being extremely foolish and they don't really know what it is that they're getting themselves into. And in my essay, I connect that to the early church, which was also populated by a very young population of people who didn't necessarily know what they were doing. Once Paul had come and gone, they just weren't entirely sure what to do with themselves. And so there are a lot of letters in the New Testament, especially um, where Paul is writing encouragement, telling them to keep the faith, don't boast about your own accomplishments. You, you should really just be boasting in Christ. And so the parallels between Paul's encouragement to the early church and then the hobbits as these young, foolish characters who are setting out into this wide world where they don't know what's going on and they don't know really what to expect. And then being plunged into a chase of Sauron's wraiths really feels kind of like being thrown into the deep end spiritually. So one of the things that I do love about Bakshi's Lord of the Rings is the different animation styles don't really mesh with each other very well, but they do also show very different ways of being and moving in the universe. So the hobbits move very gently and carefully and and they look like small children. And then the wraiths are these rotoscoped creatures. They're actual human beings that were recorded on film and then drawn over to be animated. And the effect is kind of an otherworldly, very unsettling one. Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, again, like kind of was left off halfway through the story. Doesn't really tell the story particularly well, but it does get at the mood of Tolkien, I think, in a way that other adaptations don't necessarily do. Yeah, I loved how you wrote about that in, in the essay. And those images you describe, I have not seen this version of Lord of the Rings probably since I was a kid, but especially as you were describing them, and then when I went to look for images for the website, oh man, did it all come back. They're incredibly striking and, and very unique. Is that an adaptation, Claude, you, you've seen at any time over the years? I have not seen it, and I, I really didn't know much about it until I saw Sarah's piece. So that was sort of something that I file, I've filed away. And I know we're going to talk about uh, Rings of Power later, so I will save how that's connected to Rings of Power and what that means for me as uh, somebody who's mostly been looking sort of like on the outside into the Lord of the Rings sort of lore and sort of how that show has impacted my, my uh, maybe we'll just say, quickly growing interest to maybe do what Sarah has done in, in years previous and, and take, a, uh, take a very deep plunge into this whole world. I like it. So how about sticking with the ebook? Was there another essay you saw, Claude, that um, jumped out at you or a bit of compelling bit of Tolkien theology you came across there that, that you might want to highlight? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed all the pieces. I think the one that stood out to me the most was the piece on the Fellowship of the Rings. And I believe that was uh, Dustin Markell who wrote that piece. Yeah, who's written a bunch of stuff at a TC. So I really enjoyed that piece. He he does some interesting work there connecting The Fellowship of the Ring, that first uh, film adaptation to Genesis. And in some respects, that's, that's sort of obvious, but but he he pushes that uh, observation into a lot of, a lot more deeper connections that, that again, I just really hadn't thought about. So he mentions just the tropes of, of paradise, uh, temptation, and then fraternal conflict, the fall of humankind, and just sort of this, the repercussions when 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 we cross the line between good and evil and and how we sort those things out. And so I, I just thought it was a really, yeah, just kind of astute and illuminating look at that film that also helps you consider Genesis as well. So that, that was probably my favorite piece. And, and that's also one of my favorite of the films as well. Yeah, I want to get to that, what some of our favorites are. The fraternal conflict you mentioned was 
a bit of the eye opener for me when I read that piece. So I like Same. that one as well. I've been mentioning it a number of times, but just again, for listeners who do want to get that ebook, it's available to anyone at thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. So let's move to those screen adaptations. And I'm curious if you guys have a clear favorite installment, uh, either as just a straight up film experience or for possibly some of the theology it might offer. For me, I'm going to stick with Fellowship. That was such a thrill. Having read the Lord of the Rings books quite young and being honestly one of the first, that and The Hobbit, one of the first, I guess some people wouldn't call them grown-up books, but at the time when I was that little, I felt like, oh, I'm reading a grown-up book now. Just the, the thickness of the trilogy, right? And so by the time in 2001 Fellowship came out, obviously, an adult at that point and very worried. One of those properties, just very worried, had known Peter Jackson's work and appreciated it, so felt good about that, that he was at the head of it. But then that combination, when an adaptation gets it right, of a beloved property of being thrilled and relieved is what I had when Fellowship came out. And really, the way Jackson topped, in some cases, my own imagination, the way these scenes had played out in my own head, this was even better, what I was seeing on the screen. I think my favorite action sequence of all the films is The Minds of Moria. And I still, to this day, whenever I get a new TV and want to test, like, oh, did I get the right one? I pop in the DVD and put on the Minds of Moria sequence to see if this TV, if the blacks are going to hold up in terms of the color scheme, you know, because that's a, such a great test if that scene is going to make it. So it's still fellowship for me, even though I do love all of those uh, first three films. The Hobbits, I'm a bit kinder. The Hobbit films, a bit kinder than most people, but they're still far shade below what the Lord of the Rings movies are. And I love the Fellowship of the Ring. How about you two? Sarah, do you have a clear favorite? I do. So I came to Lord of the Rings pretty young, actually. I was a little bit young for the Peter Jackson movies when they first came out. So my parents struck a deal with me, which was if I read the books, I could watch the movies. Nice. So kind of like you, Josh, very early, like more grown up story for me to be reading. And then my parents didn't know it, but when they struck that deal, they created a monster because I lived <laughs> and breathed Lord of the Rings for literally multiple years after that, wore a replica of the one ring around my neck as jewelry, like that level of intense. Wow. All right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it was my first big movie obsession. And so I think... It's probably also fellowship for me, although I have a very soft spot for the two towers as well. You get Rohan, you get the home of the horse lords. I was also a certified horse girl at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so big fan of, of watching those scenes where there's horses and there's movement and a lot of very good and clear action. But at this point, having been the kind of person who was obsessed with just the extended editions for a really long time, I think it has to be fellowship. And I think it really has to be the fellowship theatrical cut. I know that there are some purists out there who really love the extended editions because it kind of gives you additional breadth and depth, but those extended editions don't really get the same level of detail that Tolkien does. So I think I prefer the theatrical purely because it tells that story in such a beautifully stripped down way. And it's weird to call a three-hour movie a stripped down story, but Fellowship in particular, I think, gets at the sense of loss and the sense of longing that Tolkien is, is giving in his particular stories. So 
a lot of the books are spent on poetry and on longing for the world that has passed away because the world is broken. And I really do think that Lord of the Rings is not an allegory, but a very Christian story in that it is a story that mourns the brokenness of the world and longs for that world to be reborn and made new and also understands that its characters at the heart of that world aren't able to do that work themselves. So that grace is going to come from very unexpected places, especially from The Hobbits, which I really think Peter Jackson's movies get across incredibly well. There's that line about even the smallest person being able to change the course of the future, which makes me want to tear up even now just thinking about it. <laughs> well, I like that pick, obviously, and I like that reasoning. To Claude, are you going to be the one to go to bat for a Hobbit film here? Or what have you got <laughs> oh, for us? I'm I'm not, unfortunately. The Hobbit films all run together in my head mm -hmm. when I think about them. And so that that's sort of how I know that, you know, yeah, they're they're just they're, they're a tier below. I'm gonna be a little bit boring because I, I fellowship probably is my favorite one. Okay. Um, but for for different reasons, I mean I think that theme of fellowship. So I I, I think a lot about just that that theme in uh, Sarah, you're talking about Paul's writings um earlier. So just think about that theme in Paul's and Paul's letters. Obviously, we, you know, we've heard this in sermons hundreds of times, that koinonia idea. And I think the way that that Obviously, that theme runs throughout the films and throughout the stories, but I think the way that it's embodied in the first film with with Sam and with Frodo and just sort of like, you know, Frodo wants to begin this journey on his own and, you know, Sam's not going to let that happen. And I, I think that that theme of of fellowship and that that theme of sort of partnership of belonging to one another resonates so deeply with what we're made for and what the Christian life is meant to be, what what humanity is meant to be in God's vision. And so I think the way that that thread really starts in that first film is really moving to me. Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. No, indeed, it is hardly possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Wait, we're coming too! Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission, quest, thing. Well, that rules you out, Nick. I am companions. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? makes me think a lot of a lot of different great uh, theological writers, but especially Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life together. And he has this line in it, and I think it connects to some of what you were mentioning, Sarah, about this sort of invading idea of grace and this this sort of power that has to come from outside of us. And I think Lord of the Rings as a whole really, really demonstrates that, which I think is a really clear theological truth. But Bonhoeffer has this line about, about life together where he says, help has to come from the outside. Um, he says that God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the testimony of other Christians. This sort of idea that Christ in you is actually stronger than Christ in me, and so I need you. So I see that really represented in the in the beginnings of that kind of fellowship relationship with, with Sam and Frodo. And I think that's just really, yeah, just really like powerful to me. You know, so I could have, you know, I, I thought I would have maybe be the one that would, the only one that would pick that. Otherwise, maybe I would have done something else about, you know, sin and or something like that, which I, I like to talk about as well. But I think that idea, that, that display of partnership and in Koinonia and Fellowship, which will obviously be tested throughout, but the beginnings of it is, is really moving to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a rich text, so we all have the same pick, but for different reasons. I like that. And also, Claude, 
you know, we think of immediately the literal gathering of the fellowship about maybe a third of the way through the film when Frodo volunteers. But I love that you're pointing out that's there at the beginning with Sam and Frodo's relationship and how they are a group. It is a group. It starts with a group right from the beginning of the film. So that's that's good stuff. All right, Claude and Sarah are going to stick around. We're going to take a quick break here to enjoy one of my favorite elements of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings series. That's the prologue to Howard Shore's score for The Lord of the Rings, fittingly, The Fellowship of the Ring. Josh Larson here back with Sarah Welch Larson and Claude Acho. We're going to continue our Tolkien talk and consider Prime Video's massive new eight-part streaming series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Now, just to set the stage for those of you who are not obsessively keeping track of these things, working from Lord of the Rings mythology and the appendices to Tolkien's books, showrunners Patrick McKay and John D. Payne, they've set Rings of Power in Middle-Earth's Second Age. So this is several millennia, I believe. Sarah, you can correct me if I've got this wrong, before the events of The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. So we've watched three episodes so far. That's what's been out um, by the time of this recording. And they've mostly set up a vast cast of characters, elves, dwarves, men, pre-Hobbit, uh, people known as Harfoots. These groups have been living in peace mostly, but now there are whispers of a dark threat beginning to murmur through Middle-earth. So Sarah and Claude, let's start with your initial thoughts. Maybe tell me if there's, tell me if there's a character or a story arc that has grabbed you the most at this early stage. What do you think so far, Claude? Okay, so I was skeptical about this about this series, and really was like, okay, Josh wants wants me to to talk about this, so uh, you know, I, I need to I need to watch this. And then after I watched one, I was like, okay, I need all of these immediately. Oh, good, <laughs> good. And I didn't realize that we're going to come, you know, the, the first two, and then I had to wait. And so, you know, now in my house, we're we're sort of just like, okay, when's when's it Friday? And so I've <laughs> I've been totally yeah. I, and maybe it was just I didn't have huge expectations. I thought, oh, this will be fun. This will be nice. I'll get to it when I can. And I mean, I've just, yeah, just totally enjoyed just sort of a, a re-immersion in this world. And it's so vivid, so compelling. There's so much going on. And I think also as somebody who really just knows, you know, I read The Hobbit and I watched the Lord of the Ring films and The Hobbit films, the recent ones. So as someone who sort of doesn't know the material that this is alluding to or influenced by, it's just really fascinating to see this world sort of expanded. So mm. I'm like ready to, you know, do what Sarah has done and like wear, <laughs> wear find a replica ring and wear it. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally ready. Wow, somebody, you are in. Somebody give me an annotated syllabus. Um, so I've, I've really... Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed the show. I think a character, there is a lot going on in the show in terms of characters that we're following. It really does feel like, I mean, it is a whole whole world. I think Galadriel, if I'm pronouncing that right, is is the person that I've gravitated towards the most. And I just find really compelling and interesting. And I, I want to like look up you know who is this character? Do I do I know this character from the other movies? With but I'm scared to for things to be spoiled. So uh, I have some theological reasons why I find her character compelling too. But I'll maybe I'll I'll let you share, Sarah, what what your impressions have been first. 
I'm so delighted to hear that you're you're into this show as someone who is not as familiar with the material because I honestly think that I kneecapped myself a little bit by rereading The Silmarillion before watching the show. Hmm. So I think... And Silmarillion, again, give yes. us a little a little context here, <laughs> just so everyone knows we're on the same page. Yeah, the Silmarillion is essentially the history of Middle-earth up to but not including Lord of the Rings. So there's a very brief um, appendix that talks about the War of the Ring, and it's maybe 10 pages, and only two characters from Lord of the Rings get mentioned by name. The rest of the book is about the creation of the world. Like, the world is literally created through the act of singing. There is a god figure named Eru Iluvatar. There are angelic beings, and then there are elves. There's a fall. There's rebellion. There are a lot of broken relationships. And the world is essentially permanently changed by people's greed and selfishness. And then there's also some grace notes in that as well. There's some really lovely romance stories in there, too. And so I think... It's been a little bit tricky for me to get into this series because Amazon doesn't have the rights to the Silmarillion. They just have the rights to the appendices from Lord of the Rings. So a lot of the things that I take for granted as this is the history of the world are things that they just cannot show or talk about very much. So there are some allusions to the angelic beings. I believe in the second episode, the dwarves talk about Aule, who happens to be one of those angelic beings who created their race in the first place. And I think for me, it's less about comparing, well, did this happen this way in Tolkien's writing and more about the filling in the gaps between what did and didn't happen. So the stuff that I'm most interested in is actually visiting these places and these locations that I've only ever read about. There's quite a bit of episode three is focused on Galadriel coming to the island kingdom of Numenor, which was lovely. I was not expecting to enjoy those scenes as much as I did because it really feels like it's fleshing out this world in a way that I also just would not have imagined or been able to picture. So mostly Galadriel on her travels, although I'm also very curious to see where they're going to go with these Harfoot characters as well. Okay, which very much, uh, as I said, precursors to The Hobbits, and very much you have that vibe that we got from Frodo and from Sam of community and and what that means. So that feels, a lot of this feels like they're playing from the Peter Jackson playbook, which you understand at this point, it's something of a brand, and I didn't expect them to go too far afield from that. I'm also not too upset about that. As you said, Claude, it's been nice for me to be reimmersed in this world. It's one of the things I like about, you know, the Star Wars series that I have appreciated is just being in back on those planets um, and seeing different corners. And here, that's absolutely what we're getting. And we're getting it with incredible production. Uh, clearly, you know, there's been much talk about the cost of this. You can see it's on the screen. A lot of it is CGI, but I'm glad to see that there are some locations being used and practical effects and sets as well. So I appreciate that. I'm, yeah, just happy to be back in this world. I'm still waiting to be as hooked as you are, Claude. I'm I'm hoping that the setup will start to settle at a certain point and there's some more forward momentum. I do think it's going to be tied to, for me, it's probably two characters. It's Ismail Cruz Cordova as Arendir, an elf figure, a new elf figure who I think has, you know, as a performer, he has a very arresting presence and he's also gotten one of the more... <laughs> compelling storylines in terms of action. The third episode has a better action scene than we've gotten so far when 
He's been, well, I don't want to spoil it, but basically um, has a face-off with a, a monster, essentially. And I think that kind of brings some of those thrills from the original series for me. But yeah, it's Galadriel, the character of Galadriel played by Morfid Clark. She has been, without giving us a character that is somewhat a mystery, but she's still been holding my attention in such a compelling way. She first came to my attention, Morfid Clark, in the horror film St. Maud. She was the lead and played a, an obsessive religious de devotee in that film. Very unsettling and startling. There's a little bit of that here, even though she is clearly the heroine of this story. And so I'm very eager to see where it goes with her because she does seem to be the, the center of this tale if we were to kind of place one figure at the center of it. So, so far, would either of you say that, and maybe here's where we can stick with Galadriel, Claude, and go back to the the point you had hinted at, but have these episodes exhibited any of this Tolkien theology we've touched on or explored, you know, different theological avenues that do hint at the material's Christian roots? Do you want to say a little bit more about Galadriel here, Claude? Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what what stands out to me for her character, I think it's, is, it, is it the first episode where she's on the boat moving toward I don't even know how to describe these things. You know, move, <laughs> moving towards a beautiful horizon that is sort of heavenly. And, you know, without getting into tons of details, there's sort of this this choice that uh, that she has to make, right? For, for sort of, is she going to pursue this sort of mission and this calling? Or is she going to basically ride off into the sunset, the heavenly sunset, and sort of enter this um, this you know, paradise. And it, it it makes me actually think quite a bit, again, about the Apostle Paul in Philippians, where he's he's sort of torn between the two, he says in chapter one, right? To to depart and to be with Christ is better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on the account of the Philippians. He wants to, he wants to serve, he wants to help. And so he, you know, he he has this moment where he's like, okay, I'm deciding, you know, I'm I'm deciding, I'll stay around. And it's interesting because for I see the same in Gladrill, and she she makes it this this decision and she she's she ends up in water, right? She plunges herself into chaos, essentially, if you think of what water represents and the choice that she's making. And it's all part of this, this calling. It's all part of this sense of mission that that obviously drives um, much of, of, of the story and, and much of sort of her, her motive. And so there's this sort of deep sense of calling, this deep devotion. And then there's this sort of sacrifice, this sort of plunging into something at risk to oneself out of this sense of a call. And so that that just really strikes me as sort of a, a kind of apostolic thing, sort of incarnational thing that that's that's really fascinating. So I'm interested on in how how that'll work out as well. I think the the larger sort of theological theme is just the fact that sin is always on the prowl, right? Anytime where we think, oh, we've arrived, you know, things are as they should be, everything is fine, you know, we can we can rest. I I think Tolkien does a good job of just showing that that unfortunately is not the world that we live in. So we have to be ready to to contend for what's just and what's right and what's true. And I think the show really represents that. Maybe particularly when we feel like we've built the perfect city, or even in the case of the Harfoots, you know, we we have this insular community. We know what our rules are. We don't stray from the path, and then we'll be safe. Then we have this utopia in a way. But yes, one of the undercurrents of these early episodes is sin is still lurking, sin is still crouching. And those who are aware of that and want to prepare for that, like Galadriel, are sometimes looked askance at. You know, that's the other thing about her choice, Claude, that you're describing, is there isn't really anybody else on her side or backing her up. This is supposed to be her reward. She has, is being told she's earned this. And so it's a 
it's a very count, very countercultural in this context choice for her to make. How about you, Sarah? What stood out to you? It's funny, Claude. So you describing that scene of Galadriel choosing not to go to her eternal reward actually kind of might have made me appreciate the series a little bit more, largely because, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring the Silmarillion back into this just a little bit. (laughs) The elves are called to the Undying Lands by the angelic beings who rule over Middle-earth. And they go at first, and then they return back to Middle-earth out of to put a very long story short, out of selfishness, essentially. And they rebel against their call to return to this land. And the rest of the story, both in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, is the elves recognizing that they have done this rebellion and that the world is broken in part as a result of that, Hmm. and then trying to work to make things right. And eventually, they do get to return to those undying lands. Like, Galadriel does get to go at the end of Lord of the Rings. Spoiler, I suppose, for an old story. (laughs) But that choice of hers to return back to Middle-earth because her job is not done yet, I think, both is true with her character in the Silmarillion as being a character who is one of rebellion, who does rebel, but it's also her being an unorthodox person who knows what she needs to do, what is right to go against that probably almost fundamentalism, I think, of some of the other elves who, who don't recognize the flaws in their own worldview. So I I love that read because that's something that hadn't occurred to me before. And I think it's made me appreciate the- the, the, (laughs) All uh, right. Yeah, it's it's making me appreciate the TV show a little bit more. Fresh eyes, fresh eyes. Cool, cool. (laughs) Definitely good. Newbie eyes, seeing seeing things (laughs) in the dip. Yeah, without without all the extra information. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And, And I do think that one of the things that the show does get without getting into all of like, probably bogged down in the details that really aren't necessary is that idea that the world is broken and the world is continuing to be broken and that we as people who exist in it are are called to fight that brokenness, to combat that brokenness, to say, no further, we're going to stop this here and we may not necessarily be the ones who can fix it, but we're still called to be, you know, the hands and feet of God in the world today in a way that will, you know, not further the aims of darkness. So I, I do think that the show is getting at that a little bit. It's it's not as explicit as I think I personally would like, but again, I'm mm. also trying to step away a little bit further from my own fundamental uh, love <laughs> for the text. Sure, sure. I wanted to highlight uh, an article I came across that actually revealed something to me I hadn't thought about in these terms, but I thought was really interesting. And this was over at Vulture, written by Roxana Haddadi, She praised the series for being particularly carefully lit and then gave uh, that artistic choice some thematic heft. So here's what Roxana wrote. Each place is individually realized, talking about these different corners of Middle Earth we visit. Each place is individually realized, but all of them use actual and metaphorical light to draw us into what is happening on screen and to link brightness, radiance, and luminosity to notions of heroism, ingenuity, and worthiness. While the elves' connection to light and dark is the rings of power at its most literal, the show is magnanimous in dispensing aesthetically beautiful moments that also serve as world-building and character development. I thought that was great, and she highlights in episode one the scene in an ice cave, also another good action sequence we've gotten so far. But here the cold and the darkness extinguishes the torches of Galadriel's group that she's leading there. And so thinking about this, you know, in theological terms and extending what Roxana pointed out, obviously there's a connection to 
discussions of darkness and light in the Bible. We can see that right away. But I think it's also related to this idea of light being representative of hope. And that connects to an idea Tolkien actually wrote about, which was eucatastrophe. So this sense of faith in a happy ending, no matter how dire things seem. And we that already sounds familiar, right, to what we've seen in the Lord of the Rings films and the use of darkness and light there, too. So there's this faith that we will get to that happy ending. That's the promise of the gospel, and it's one that I think we've had glimmers of here in the show, especially in its use, in the lighting that um, that the filmmakers are employing. So I was happy to see that uh, post from Roxana. I'll link to that in the show notes. Is there anything else on the series? Um, you know, we've only had three episodes to go on so far, as I've said, but anything else either of you wanted to point out or highlight? I'm curious to see where they're going to go with the Harfoots. I think there's some interesting cultural differences between them and the Hobbits that I'm really curious to see okay. how that's going to play out. And I'm really excited to explore a little bit more both of the dwarves and of Numenor, just exploring those little those little corners that haven't necessarily had that light shown upon them just yet. Yeah, and speaking of light, I love the touch where in the dwarves' kingdom within the mountain, they've found ways to use mirrors to capture sun coming through the cracks and bouncing it to another mirror to another mirror until it'll hit a, you know, a cliff or something inside and allow plants to grow and life to thrive. It's, it's another variation on, I think, what Roxana was uh, highlighting in her vulture piece. How about you, Claude? Anything else before we uh, head out here? I've been surprised how much I've enjoyed this. I will say the the Harfoots sort of arc is the one where I'm like, okay, like let's let's, let's pick up the pace a little bit here. Like been there, been there, done that. So curious to see what that'll be like. And um, I feel like I would be remiss to not give a plug for Fleming Rutledge's book on the Lord of the Rings. She's a Episcopal priest and theologian. I think it's called The Battle for Middle Earth. Um, she's uh, one of the best theologians that we've had in a long time. I uh, wrote a great book on the crucifixion in 2016, a big, big, huge book. And so I have wanted to read Lord of the Rings in order to read her book. So I feel like people who have listened this far in this episode and like what we do at TC, I think you will find this book very, very compelling. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I know of some of her work, but was not aware of that. So thank you very much for that suggestion, Claude. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to do this, to look back at some of those older film adaptations and check out The Rings of Power with me. Sarah, as we've said, you contributed to the ebook, and there's also, I believe, a Seen and Believing episode that's already out of yes. uh, the podcast you co-host on Rings of Power, right? Yep, that's correct. Kevin and I went very long on the Rings of Power. Oh, cool. <laughs> we're a little bit more down on it there than we were here. But again, Claude, I think you turned me around on a couple of things. <laughs> you, just, you just need a rookie to be in the mix to just bring that bright-eyed, bushy-tailed happiness to the, to the conversation. Put me in, Coach. Yes, yes, yep. yes. There is a there is an episode of Seeing and Believing where we cover both that and also the miniseries Over the Garden Wall, which it's fall. It's time for Over the Garden Wall again. So definitely, um, if you're interested in that, you can check us out over at Christ and Pop Culture. Excellent. And Claude, we just posted, I believe it was yesterday at thinkchristian.net, your article on the latest Lupe Fiasco album. Can you maybe give a brief tease of that? Because it was a, a really great essay. 
uh, Lupe Fiasco's new new album, and I think it it stands in contrast to a lot of you know he's on the margins of the mainstream, far out of the margins now. His prime has kind of come and gone in terms of attention, not in terms of skill. And, but his sort of sense of morality and a sense of a conscience is really really strong. And I think given the number of deaths that have happened to hip hop artists, in fact, even one this week, PNB uh, Rock, who was who was shot and killed in Los Angeles, what Lupe is trying to speak about in his album, I think, is a really important moral question for people who uh, who appreciate the genre and i think it's one that a lot of artists of a larger stature refuse to refuse to really engage in their music and i think lupe is sort of a, a very prophetic uh, and moral voice that's speaking up so I, I wanted to felt compelled to to write about that so yeah check check that out yeah i i encourage folks to to give the album a listen drill music in zion correct is yes. is the title and i always appreciate you know giving a spin to something like that after having had a piece from you, Claude, to give it some context. So thank you for doing that. And thank you both again for joining me. We will do this again on another topic down the road, okay? Look forward to it. Thank you. Some more music by Howard Shore there. That's from his main title theme for The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. That's J.R.R. Tolkien discussing his idea of sub-creation in his treatise on fairy stories. Thanks to Sarah Welch Larson and Claude Acho for considering such fairy stories, Tolkien's and those he inspired on this episode. Again, our Lord of the Rings ebook, including Sarah's essay and two that I wrote, is yours. Just go to thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings to get your copy. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Dodgy Boffin, and Claude is at Claude Acho. We're on Twitter, too, as well as Facebook. At Think Christian is where you can find us. Don't forget to join us online on October 22 to discuss Transcendent Spielberg. That's the next installment of our TC Movie Club. To sign up and receive a meeting link, go to thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Over at the Think Christian YouTube channel, I've also posted my latest video essay for the club, highlighting scenes of transcendence in a handful of Spielberg films. So do check that out, as well as video versions of our podcasts. One last note, we could use some fresh reviews over at Apple Podcasts. If you could take 30 seconds or so, leave us at least a star rating, but a couple of comments would be great as well. That really helps to raise our profile and find new listeners. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassett. Thanks so much for listening. We'll get together in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. 